I'd like to introduce our next speaker, this week's speaker, Sister Mary Margaret. Our very own Sister Mary Margaret O'Brien teaches lower school religion and Latin at St. Agnes School. She holds graduate degrees in theology and education and has taught in Colorado, Michigan, Florida, California, and now in Minnesota. I'm not sure why she agreed to leave Florida and California, but here she is, and we are happy to have her. Sister Mary Margaret entered the Dominican Sisters of Mary Mother of the Eucharist in 2001. It is most fitting that one of our own Dominicans introduce us to the great Dominican mystic, Saint Catherine of Siena. Please join me in welcoming Sister Mary Margaret O'Reilly. Thank you, Brandon. Before I begin, I just want to ask, how many of you are familiar with the life of St. Catherine of Siena? Okay. How many of you have read her dialogue? So, a few. Um, I'd like to begin with a story. Um, a few months ago, the sis other sisters and I were at a gala dinner, and the main speaker was Bishop Robert Barron. And um, we ran into him in the stairwell, and he saw that we were Dominicans. He said, sisters, Dominicans, right? And um, he said, will you pray to St. Catherine of Siena for me? And um, he said, the church needs so much prayer, and especially the bishops. So since Catherine was such a great, um, she prayed and worked so hard for the reform of the church, and especially for the pope, um, he said, please pray for St. Catherine, for the bishops in general, and for me in particular. And I had already begun thinking about this talk, but I realized that Catherine is a very fitting saint for our time, when the church and bishops are in much need of prayer. Although, actually, if you read about what St. Catherine has to say about the clergy of your time, you realize that we actually have nothing to complain about. <laughs> Her contemporaries have all the same sins, but they're much more widespread and much more public. So it's a little shocking to read. However, she is also a great example for us in our own lives because of her profound love of God and the way she expressed this love through love of neighbor. She reminds us that God is giving us all the graces we need to become holy despite our time. So tonight, I'm going to be talking first briefly about her life and works um, and about a number of her main teachings. So knowledge of self and of God in her in self. Um, the redemption, Catherine sees the spiritual life as centered in Christ, um, who is our bridge to heaven and who has given us his blood, which is dispensed to us by the church through the sacraments. And the redemption reveals God's love and mercy for us. Um, the church, the church is indispensable to us. She says, it is the medium through which the blood shed on the cross for sinful man is available to sinners individually. And the Pope holds the keys of the blood, which reaches us through the church. Um, love of neighbor, and then her two main allegories, you'll see she loves allegories, um, the tree of charity and the Christ bridge. So first a quick overview of her life. Um, she was born in Siena, Italy, March 25th, 1347. She was the 24th out of 25 children. Um, at, age, at age six, she had a vision of Christ over this church, the Church of St. Dominic in Siena. Um, she had a vision of him in glory, dressed as the Holy Father, and he just looked at her and smiled at her and blessed her. And she knew herself loved by him. And that affected the rest of her life. At age seven, she vowed her virginity to Christ. Um, at age 16, when her mother tried to arrange a marriage for her, she announced that she never intended to marry and then cut off her hair to discourage any suitors. 
Um, she then asked to join the Dominican Third Order, the Mantellata, so older widows or old maids who perform the works of mercy, caring for the poor and sick, teaching. Um, at first they said no to her, and so she prayed for smallpox, and God gave it to her. They, she was, they said she was too young and pretty, and so God gave her smallpox, and when she recovered, her face was scarred, so they accepted her. Um, her, family, her family punished her by making her a servant, um, making her share a room with her brothers, until one day her father came upon her in ecstasy, and then after that he told the family to leave her alone. So she spent almost three years in uh, solitude, living in her family's house, but really speaking to no one, just going to mass and returning to her room. Um, she spent her day in doing chores to the family and prayer and penance. Um, at this time she began fasting almost continually, and actually later in her life she lived only on the Eucharist. So at age 20, um, Jesus appeared to her on Mardi Gras when everyone else was having carnival, and he asked her if she would leave her solitude and work for the love of her neighbor. Um, so she began at first by caring for the poor and sick of Siena, but soon a family of spiritual disciples began to gather around her, and she started to um, teach them, to preach to them. So it was other women from the Dominicans, um, religious and priests, young nobles. They called them the Caterinati, <laughs> maybe derisively. Um, and they would accompany her and serve as secretaries for her letter writing, and she would give advice to them and pray for them. And they called her mama. So she developed a family, which totally different from her three years of just solitude, not speaking to anyone. Um, the Pope actually assigned three confessors to follow her around for all the conversions or reversions she would make in her travels. And um, in 1375, she received the stigmata, although at her request, it was invisible to everyone but herself. Um, she had tremendous love for the church, and she focused on several great problems. So the moral reform of the church, she, as she said, to wash the face of the church, um, the call for a crusade, and particularly the return of the Pope to Rome, and later the end of the Great Schism. So at this point, popes had lived in Avignon, France for half a century, and she wrote many letters to the Pope. She called him Babo Mio, and she would advise him for a long period of time, um, often sternly telling him what he should do. Um, and Florence declared war on the Pope, who put them under interdict, and so Catherine came to them, and, or they came to Catherine and said, please go to the Pope and plead for us, um, and he'll listen to you. So she, with all her family, about 30 people, she went to Avignon from Italy and saw the Pope and met with him over the course of several months and finally convinced him to return to Rome after she revealed to him a secret vow he had made. So he did return to Rome, but after one year, he died and his, so it was Gregory XI who died, and his successor was Urban IV. Um, he was not, well, there were, I won't go into all the details, but six months later they elected an anti-pope, Clement VII, and um, the Great Schism began. There were two popes and then eventually three. Um, so Catherine, the pope called Catherine to Rome, asked her to speak to the cardinals in consistory, and she spent the rest of her life, um, not too much longer, in Rome, writing to people, telling them to support the Pope, um, and praying for him. Um, she offered her life to the church. She died April 29th, 1380, and was buried in Rome. She was canonized in 1461, and in the 20th century, she was named a doctor of the church and a co-patron of Europe.
So I'd like to look at her works. Okay. Um, so she's very much a teacher and a spiritual mother. She had no ed education besides catechesis in her childhood, but she would have been influenced by the preaching of the Dominicans. And um, she apparently only learned to read and write at age 30 when Jesus taught her himself. Um, and although she constantly uses images and allegories, her writing is also doctrinal and heavily filled with scripture. So perhaps her most famous work is the dialogue. Um, so this was dictated to three secretaries in the course of a year um, while she was in ecstasy, so in different sessions. And um, it's a conversation between God the Father and Catherine. Actually, God the Father does almost all the talking. She asks a few questions and then asks him to have mercy on the church, on the world. Um, so in this book, she's asking him to reveal the truth to her and also to have mercy. These are the main two things she's doing. She also has a number of letters, so written to all, every kind of person, popes, kings, prisoners, uh, nobles, housewives, all about the spiritual life and just showing her spiritual maternity. And her personality really comes out in her letters. Um, 26 prayers, which she spoke in ecstasy at the end of her life, transcribed by her disciples. I also included the life, her life written by um, Blessed Raymond of, Cap Raymond of Capua, her Dominican confessor. He was assigned to her by the Dominican order. Um, and throughout her writings, I'll use some of them, Catherine uses hundreds of images, so drawn from her daily life. For example, just one, um, she tells us that we have to feed the dog of conscience so it'll be strong in a word against enemies. So you can just picture the dog, you're feeding it so it'll start barking when you need him. Um, so a few Dominican influences, um, noting the, looking for the primacy of the virtues in the spiritual life, um, seeking truth in the salvation of souls, one of Catherine's most common names for Christ is the sweet first truth. Um, one of the Dominican mottos from St. Thomas Aquinas is to contemplate and to give to others the fruits of our contemplation. And this idea corresponds with one of Catherine's main themes. So moving from the knowledge and love of God to love of neighbor. In the dialogue, she describes the love of God as a fountain where we can fill the vessel of love of neighbor. So he, the love of God is the fountain, but if you take your vessel away from the fountain and drink it, It'll be emptied soon, as soon as you finish drinking it. So she says, no, you keep your, your vessel in the fountain and drink from it at the same time. So you're contemplating God and at the same time giving it to your neighbor. Um, also, devotion to Our Lady. Catherine begins almost everything she writes um, with Our Lady in the name of Christ crucified and of gentle Mary. One of her great um, analogies for Mary, she says, out of mercy, God set out Mary like bait to catch his creatures because he knew that she would be attractive to us. So one of her first themes, uh, uh, her first, the first teaching I'd like to talk about is knowledge of self and of God. This is fundamental to her. Um, these are her two basic principles, that you have to know yourself, that of yourself you have nothing good, but knowledge of God who loves you completely and dwells in you. According to St. Raymond of Capua, her biographer and confessor, God said to Catherine, do you know, daughter, who you are and who I am? If you know these two things, you will have beatitude within your grasp. You are she who is not, and I am he who is. So self-knowledge gives us humility, while knowledge of God gives us charity. So you need both kinds of knowledge. If you just have self-knowledge, 
you might tend toward despair. If you only look at God's love, you might tend toward presumption. So once you have a deep understanding of how much God loves you, then you're able to return that love by loving your neighbor. So self-knowledge. We've been wonderfully created in God's image and likeness, but damaged by sin. So both in the natural and supernatural order, we have nothing that's not from God. He created us. He's redeemed us from sin out of love. Um, Catherine warns us that the origin of all our sins is self-love. So kind of the opposite of seeing ourselves truly. She says, so reason is like an eye, and the pupil of that eye is faith. So the eye is reason, the pupil is faith. And self-love is a cloud that covers your eye, covers the eye of reason. So you're not able to see yourself truly as you are. And it causes us to mis misjudge situations, not seeing things as they really are. So she says, whenever you sin out of self-love, um, you have to return to the knowledge of who you are and who God, the one offended, is. Um, the fruits of self-knowledge are humility, um, naturally, and then what she calls holy self-hatred. And she says, we kill self-love with a double-edged knife, namely of hatred of vice and love of virtue. So she, she does think that the person is created, the soul is beautiful, really created by God, but just that because of sin and because he has given us everything, um, you're not hating yourself as um, created by God, but hating your sin and your inclination to sin. And then also penance, which is, she reminds us, it's aimed at killing your will more than mortifying your body. She herself practiced many mortifications, but in her writings, she warns people about being um, focusing on the penance instead of love of God. She says exterior penance is only is valuable if it leads you to interior virtue. Um, so once you know yourself, you also have to have with that love of God. So Catherine tells us that those who know more, love more. And following St. Thomas Aquinas, she says that love comes from seeing oneself loved. Thus, the more we know we are loved by him, the more we will love him in return. And by knowledge of God, she doesn't mean just studying him, but especially encountering him in scripture and in prayer. And on the other hand, if we know only imperfectly, we will love imperfectly. So we are continually seeking a greater knowledge of God. And so what knowledge of God should we have? So we should know that he created us out of love. Out of love, he loves us first and with infinite mercy. He says to Catherine, my mercy is incomparably greater than all the sins committed in the world. And then he wants only our good and happiness. However, he permits trials and temptations in order to purify us and lead us to eternal life. Catherine says, as you can see your defects better in a mirror, so you can see yourself better when you see yourself in God. However, at the same time, she reminds us, you're also better able to see your great dignity. Um, so with these two forms of knowledge, so knowledge of self and knowledge of God in yourself, um, she advises us to make an interior cell. This is perhaps uh, one of her most well-known images that she says, make for yourself a cell in your mind from which you can never leave. She also calls it a house of knowledge of ourselves and of God where we converse with him. So, these, so keep these in mind, this double knowledge, knowledge of yourself, knowledge of God, because everything else she writes, this is underpinning it, that you have to know yourself and you have to know God. Um, so next, the redemption. She says, 
We know God's love for us because it was made manifest in the incarnation and then in the redemption. Because of original sin, we're we were deprived of knowledge of ourself and of God's goodness, so we're lacking that double knowledge, and we need to be redeemed. She puts it that the clay of humankind was spoiled by human sin, so Christ had to unite himself to our wounded humanity. Through Christ's atonement, the pus was rained out of Adam's wound, leaving only the scar. And it's removed by baptism, but we still retain our inclination to sin and physical weaknesses. So one of the words Catherine uses most frequently is blood. She speaks of the blood of Christ, which shows God's love for us because he shed his blood for us in the redemption. Every letter she writes, she begins with words like uh, something like, I am writing to you in his precious blood. Um, the blood for her represents grace, and the sacraments are life-giving conduits through which the life of grace comes to us. So where we would speak of sacramental grace, Catherine just speaks of blood. Um, actually, when she received the Eucharist, it would taste like blood to her. And actually, her last word, when she was dying, um, she cried out, blood, blood, blood. She's looking at the crucifix and remembering how much that Jesus loved her. So she uses the word throughout her works, but every time it's reminding her that he loved us enough to shed his blood for us. Um, next, the church. One of the main themes in the dialogue is Catherine begging God to have mercy on the world, and especially on the church. Um, on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. And his thirst of desire for us is continued in the church and in holy souls. Catherine gives several different analogies for the church. Um, one, the church is a vineyard. Christ is the vine, and we are the branches, members of his body. Um, the chief vine grower is the pope, whom she calls sweet Christ on earth. And without obedience to him, the vine would be ruined. She also speaks of the church as a wine cellar, in which the wine is the blood of Christ. She says the pope stands at the door of the wine cellar, since he has the keys to the blood, and it is given, the blood is given out to us in the sacraments. Christ also gave the pope the key of obedience that we all obey him. In the dialogue, God goes into great detail in speaking to Catherine about scandals in the church, especially caused by sinful priests. He says, no matter where you turn, to secular or religious, clerics or prelates, lowly or great, young or old, you see nothing but sin. All of them pelt me with the filth of deadly sin. She uses the analogy that the church is like a field overgrown with putrid weeds. Although they can't damage the church herself and her sacraments, they make her look like, they make her look ugly and um, her true face is not shown. However, God the Father emphasized to Catherine that the sacraments give us grace no matter how sinful the minister is. Um, terrible though our modern scales are, when you read the dialogue, you realize that things have actually been much worse. And at least nowadays people think these things are scandalous. She talks about priests who are in grave sin but don't want to go to confession, so they just pretend to consecrate the host. And the way she speaks about it, it seems like this is a very widespread thing. She says, you know, you should pray when you go to Mass and say, if this is not really Je you I'm receiving, Jesus, please, um, I'm not intending to offend you. Um, now, God, he, God explains to Catherine, though, that she should not re stop revering clergy who sin, saying that the reverence you pay to them is not actually paid to them, but to me, in virtue of the blood I've entrusted to their ministry. So when Catherine's horrified over these sins in the clergy, God just tells her to pray for them constantly and cling to Christ. She says, if, she tells us, if you want to see God honored in his church, you must love enough to suffer willingly and patiently. On the other hand, God does speak to her priests who are faithful to him. He describes them as bathed in the blood, grace, hungry for the salvation of souls, all ablaze with charity for their neighbors, 
coming through the gate of the word and entering into me. So after the soul comes to know herself and to know God's goodness to her through the redemption and through the church, she desires to return that love through love of neighbor, which causes her to practice the virtues. She says there's no other way to attain virtue except by means of love of neighbor. And God tells Catherine, the service you cannot render me, you must do for your neighbors. And he reminds her that you're your, you are your own chief neighbor. Um, each person is a primary virtue, which in turn gives birth to the other virtues in us. And God intentionally gave us all different gifts so that we would be obliged to practice charity toward each other. And your virtues are also tested and brought to birth by enduring your neighbor's vices. So when your neighbor annoys you, you have the opportunity to grow in patience. And similarly, every sin you commit injures both you and your neighbor. Um, in mentioning the virtues, I should add that she tells us we need prayer to grow in virtue, both because we need God's help to grow in virtue and because prayer helps make us like God. She describes prayer as the weapon we used against the enemy, the devil. God tells Catherine that the soul learns every virtue in constant and fruitful, humble prayer. So we looked at some of her main teachings, and um, I'm going to move to her two main allegories. So her two main images for the spiritual life, um, one much larger than the other, but the tree of charity and the bridge. So the first of these is based on love of neighbor. I spent a little while looking all over the internet for pictures of these things. You'd think that if she has all these um, allegories and images that she writes about, someone would have drawn pictures of them, but no. I only found one picture of the tree and I disagreed with it, so I made my own. <laughs> I was drawing this last night during parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> so here's the tree of charity. Um, so the three main virtues working together in this allegory are charity, humility, and discernment. So the tree is the soul. In one of her letters, Catherine says, the soul is made of love and created for love. It cannot live without love. Um, charity is the mother of all the virtues since it gives them the proper motive, which is for love of God. Oh, I have a laser pointer. Okay, so you have the, so the circle is self-knowledge. I'm not sure you can read this, but I'll, I'll just tell you what it says, even if you can't read it. So the circle is self-knowledge and knowledge of God in yourself. So again, those are the principles. You need that. And she reminds us that without God, without knowledge of him, it would be confusion. So you wouldn't have a, your circle would not be complete and the soil would leak all over. So the soil is humility. So humility fills the circle because humility comes from self-knowledge as well as from the knowledge of God's great, great gifts to you. And so since it's the soil, humility is nourishing charity. The roots are the soul's love. So if your soul is going to grow in charity, it's going to need to be nourished by loving humility. And she has a shoot grafted on the side. It's not very bright here, but there's a graft, which actually is like a twin tree to it. So you can picture two palm trees that grow up together, like from one root. That's the impression that I got from reading her. So this discernment, she speaks a lot about the virtue of discernment, which is something like prudence. It's a very important virtue for God, or for St. Catherine. She calls it double knowledge of self and of God. So if you have this virtue, then you know what is due to God and to yourselves, yourself, and you also know what's due to your neighbor. So what's due to your neighbor is charity and constant prayer and teaching and the example of a holy and honorable life and counsel and help that you need for your salvation. She calls the virtue of discernment the holy lamp, since by its light, the soul can see clearly through the devil's snares and act with a prudence that cannot be deceived. 
Um, so discernment is a graft onto the tree of charity, but it affects all the other, um, all the branches of the tree and all the virtues which are fruits of charity. Um, so discernment is not only the grafted on tree, but it's also the branches. And so the marrow of the tree is patience. Catherine says that patience as the heart of charity is the sign that you really possess virtue. If you, aren't, if you don't have patience, then you're not really virtuous. So, um, so the, your tree of charity blossoms out in the virtues and it bears the fruit of graces for yourself and for blessings for your neighbor. So our virtues always benefit our neighbor. In a related analogy, Catherine compares the person to an organ. So if any musicians out there will appreciate this, I loved it. She says your intellect, your will, and your memory, your three powers, the three powers of your soul, as well as all of your senses, each one of them opens and shuts like stops of an organ. So if you're opening your, your powers of your intellect, will, and memory, and your senses, if you're opening them to selfishness or sensual pleasures, they make a dead sound. When they open to virtue and truth and remembering God's gifts, they make beautiful sounds. So the more virtuous you are, the more harmonious and beautiful your organ sounds, and the more you're able to draw many souls to God when they hear your beautiful music. She adds that the music started on the cross when Jesus, whom she calls the maestro, played the most beautiful music and drew us to himself. So next, the analogy of the bridge. So when Catherine's speaking of a bridge, she's not talking about a little footbridge. She's thinking of a medieval bridge like this one, which she would have walked on in her times in, she spent a lot of time in Florence. And um, God says to Catherine, so, he, so here we have, when we were created, so Adam was created, he had a straight path to God. These are more pictures I drew last night. Okay, so, so the, God says to Catherine, by Adam's sinful disobedience, the road, the road to God, was so broken up that no one could reach everlasting life. With sin there came at once the flood of a stormy river that beat against them constantly. You were all drowning because not one of you, for all your righteousness, could reach eternal life. But I wanted to undo these great troubles of yours, so I gave you a bridge, my son, so that you could cross over the river, the stormy sea of this darksome life, without being drowned. So she actually envisions the, the bridge to really be Christ. It's Christ stretching from us to God. And the bridge goes from earth to heaven because his human and divine natures are, are united. And so this is not a bridge that goes across or like this. This is a bridge that goes like this at a really steep angle from earth to heaven. And she quotes John 14, 6. No one can come to the Father except through me. We must go to the Father through, she says we must go to the Father through Christ crucified, meaning through suffering. I forgot to draw in the fact that the bridge has a thorn bush at the base. Um, so the thorn bush is the decision the will encounters when it seeks to follow the way of truth. So conscience pulls conscience pull us in one direction and sensuality in the other. Um, so people in Catherine's time in trouble with commitment too. Um, try, so she talks about people just hesitating there at the bush, seeing the thorns and being afraid. However, once the soul makes the decision to follow Christ crucified, the bush is broken. And many people who run away from the thorns don't, from the thorns, don't realize that God's tenderness is right behind it. You just have to get through that bush, and there he is. And you're starting on the road to heaven. Um, she says, those who cross the thorns onto the bridge are not hurt because their feet, meaning their affections, are shod with God's will. So they may suffer physically, but not spiritually, because they no longer have a selfish will. However, 
the, uh, the river below, we have the devil. So he is trying to pull people into the river, to entice you into the river. So the river is um, the current of the world, which is the river of death, because no one can cross it without drowning. The only way is the bridge. She says of the devil, he blinds them with the pleasures and honors of the world. He catches them with a hook of pleasure under the guise of good. So we're always seeking good, but he's trying to make what's evil appear good. The greatest danger for these souls is fear of suffering. God says to Catherine, in their desire to escape suffering, they fall into suffering. Christ, on the other hand, attracts souls with love. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So God calls all to charity, meaning to get onto the bridge. Um, and, but there are two paths. So common charity is the actual observance of the commandments and observance of the councils only in spirit. So if you're following this route, you take the general stairs, which is really just to go across the cross, perhaps. And um, then there's perfect charity, which is observing both the commandments and the councils. So you take the particular stairs. So the general stairs would be living um, the commandment of love of God and love of neighbor um, in your three powers of memory, intellect, and will. She reminds us that our likeness to God is in these three powers. And when they, those three powers are gathered together in charity, united in charity, God is in their midst by grace. So the memory holds on to God's blessings, understanding contemplate the love, contemplates the love he has shown us by sending his son, and the will joined with them to desire its goal, which is God. So the general stairs, they put you on the bridge and they lead you to heaven. Um, but the particular stairs, which they symbolize, take you there in more perfect charity. So Catherine spends much more time speaking of the particular stairs. So um, that is her main, they are her main description of the bridge. And it follows the threefold division of the stages of the spiritual life. So the purgative, illuminative, and unitive ways. So these stairs are marked in his body. So the first stair is his nailed feet. The second is his wounded side. And the third is his mouth. So God says to Catherine, get up, daughter, rise above yourself and climb on me. And so that you can climb up, I made for you the staircase which is nailed to the cross. Um, so this bridge, she keeps adding things to our analogy. So the bridge, back to our picture, has walls of virtue. So the stones that make the walls are virtue. And the roof is mercy to protect us from the reign of divine justice. And then there's a hostel on the bridge. So the church is on the bridge waiting to feed hungry travelers with the Eucharist. And no one stands still on the bridge. You're either going forward or backward. And if you imagine as a tight slant, you can see you have to, if you're not climbing up, you're going to slide back down. So, and even when you're on each one of the three stairs, you're progressing. So uh, each stair admits of degrees. It's not you're here, and then you're here. And you're, no, you're, you're advancing upward. So I made you a little chart of the bridge. So the first, so the first stair is at the feet. This one corresponds to the purgative way. She doesn't actually, let me remember, I don't think she actually uses those terms, but um, they, her, her description matches them. So we get onto the first stair by lifting our two feet from the earth. So your two feet are love and desire or thirst. Desire or thirst, she uses the same. Um, however, if you're walking sluggishly, there are winds ready to blow you off. So the wind of prosperity or adversity can make you turn away. If things are going too well, you'll think, oh, I can just relax and not strive for virtue. And so you fall back into the river. Or the wind of adversity, likewise, you think, oh, this is just too hard. I give up. And you're back in the river. You might also be turned back by disordered loves or by complacency. So saying, why shouldn't I enjoy this life? I can always turn to God's mercy in the end. 
Um, there are two principal sufferings of those who love the world and are struggling with making the decision to get on the bridge. So either fear of losing what they have or longing for what they cannot have. And those people, since they can't lift their two feet, love and desire, off the earth, they never step onto the bridge. Created things cannot satisfy us, she tells us, because they were made for us and not us for them. So you also need thirst to travel the bridge, to get on it. So you need thirst for God's honor and for your own and for your neighbor's salvation. To persevere, you have to pray. So you need humble and constant prayer, keeping in mind that double knowledge, the knowledge of self and of God. However, she reminds us, perfect prayer is not achieved with many words, but with loving desire. God says to her, never relax your desire to ask for my help. Never stop knocking at the door of my truth, that's Christ, by following in his footsteps. Um, you also need companions on the bridge. If you are um, cut off from your neighbor, you will not be able to persevere. Catherine quotes Matthew 18, 20, so where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So on this first stair, our love is that of a mercenary servant. So it's really more love of self. So the servant is serving the master out of pay for payment and then out of fear. Um, signs that your love is only mercenary if you're impatient with sufferings, um, if you get weary in the battle against temptations, if you lose fervor at prayer, if you give up at works of mercy. And so some people fall off the first step back into the river. Again, blown by those winds of prosperity and adversity. Um, and what we need to do is dig out, she says, we need to dig out the root of spiritual selfishness and try to act not out of fear of punishment, but out of love of virtue. And once we, start to, once we start to act out of love of virtue, it makes us faithful servants and we'll be ready to move on to the second stair. The second stair is the side of Christ, his heart. And this one's characterized by per pursuit of virtue rather than trying to avoid sin. And it corresponds to the illuminative way. So at this stair, we start as faithful servants and we move to the love of friendship. So it's not enough to flee from sin, um, she says, out of fear of punishment, nor to embrace virtues because of their usefulness, as is not sufficient to give us eternal life, but you must give up sin because sin displeases God and love virtue for his sake. So some characteristics of this second stair, we look less at the gifts and more at the giver. So God intentionally united the gift and the giver by um, becoming man so that we can see them both together. At this stage, God gives us consolations, so thirst for virtue, hunger for the Eucharist, love of prayer, but um, she warns us that sometimes it's easy for us to become attached to these things out of self-love. Also, sometimes we think that we're full of God because we're really enjoying acts of charity or works of virtue. And really the joy is that we're having is that we're doing things our own way. And so to purify us, God often gives us aridity to help prepare us for the love of friendship. Um, and so the feeling of God's presence disappears the devil sometimes makes us think that this life is too difficult or we can get to God apart from the cross. And God allows these trials so, we'll, so that we will grow in self-knowledge and also to destroy our self-will. So we'll put our trust only in him. So these trials come and go as God sees that we need them. And we should respond by humility, so knowing that we don't actually deserve consolations, um, fidelity to our duties, especially those to our neighbor. She keeps coming back to the neighbor. Always you're remembering your neighbor. Um, perseverance in prayer. She says the proof that prayer works is that when you put that weapon down, the devil can get from you whatever he wants. And then finally, remaining in the cell of self-knowledge. When you're fully on the second stair, get to the top of the second stair, you arrive at Jesus' wounded side. 
by what she calls a secret of the heart, meaning the great depth with which he loved us. We are the, op the object of his infinite love and desire. Um, she says, when the soul arrives in his heart, she experiences such a burning love that she runs on to the third stair, that is, to his mouth, where it is clear that she has arrived at perfection. She uses the pronoun she throughout her whole works because she's really talking about herself, but she only talks about herself in the third person. Um, so the third stair. She calls the first stair and the second stair first stage and second stage, then she has two stages on the, the third and fourth on the third stair. But she says really the third and fourth are united. Um, so the, the third stair is characterized by filial love. So this is what, so she sees filial love as perfect love. Um, diverse gifts are given, so things like prophecy, stigmata, levitation, ecstasies, these are all things that she had. Um, spiritual intoxication. And then spiritual peace and calm. So you've had some victory over vice and self-love. And you're united with God. Your mind is united with him. Your feelings are united with him, so you sense his presence. And your will is united with him, so you're free of sensitive self-will. Now, um, my two stages. So the, those who are perfect, she says, he prunes by means of trials. So disgrace, insults, abuse, hunger, and thirst. So you may be united with God, but you also have a lot of trials. Um, and in this stage, the soul is, in the third stage, the soul is waiting for God, she says, in the house of self-knowledge. But once she, he comes to her in charity, she gives birth to the virtues in her, as her neighbor needs them. Um, three virtues that are assigned to the stage are patience, courage, and perseverance. She says these are all found at the top of the tree of charity. And um, now the soul is stable and secure in God, but still you can't trust too much in yourself. God says to her, I grant these souls a sting hunger for the salvation of souls, so they knock day and night at the door of my mercy, so much that they forget themselves. And the more that they abandon themselves, the more they find me. So now love of neighbor is easy, gratuitous, so you stop noticing the suffering that's involved um, because everything else seems minor with, compared to the loss of the soul. And when the soul arrives at the mouth, she fulfills the mouth's functions. So speaking and chewing, um, again, Catherine's very graphic. So speaking, she says you're speaking, asking God for mercy, speaking to him lovingly, and then you're speaking to your neighbor, proclaiming truth, um, admonishing your neighbor, advising your neighbor, and then also chewing the food of souls. So the food of her soul, is, of your soul, is to feed on other souls. Um, and the table is the cross. So she says, you chew with two rows of teeth, hatred for yourself and love for virtue. Um, just as Christ says, my food is to, do the, is to do the will of him who sent me. And so she says, um, the soul grows so fat because of the abundance of this food that your body splits apart because you um, have grow, like, grow, grown so much in virtue. And so your self-will dies, because if your body splits apart, you die. And your soul is clothed in the divine will. Um, the fourth stage she calls most perfect union. And really, she says, the only difference is that the third stage still has some of the characteristics of the second stage. You still haven't quite, um, you still have a little self-love. And the soul can always grow in perfection, but not to another stage, she says. The soul is enduring peace and quiet, secure in friendship with God, and secure, sure of going on to heaven, and desiring to be free from the body. So she says, just like St. Paul, the souls of this stage are crying out to be free from their bodies and united to God. 
Um, she says, souls of the state are filled with both joy and sadness. So you're filled with joy because you share God's charity, but also great sadness over the offenses committed against God and the harm that's done to those who sin. However, she calls it a fattening sadness. She says, not a distressing sadness because the soul's sufferings increase her love and virtue. So at this point, the third stage, all that is left is to pass through the gate of truth um, at the far end of the bridge, which we open with the key of obedience. And that is death. And we arrive in heaven, where the soul, seeing the Father loves him, is satisfied, knows the truth, and has her will firmly grounded in him. So I've given you a short overview of some of her main teachings um, very quickly. You can read the dialogue and see more or read her letters. Um, but to conclude, God tells Catherine that the saints are like lamps set in a lampstand to point out the way of truth that leads to life. So St. Catherine is our lamp, or one of our lamps, to show us the way to life. Um, she teaches us to keep God fixed at the center of our hearts and our lives. So in her vision at age six, you remember, Christ looked at her with love and won her heart. And for the rest of her life, she had great confidence that she was loved by God, and this able, enabled her to return his love and to let it overflow onto others. So Christ is looking at each one of you, too, with great love. And I pray that each of you will see his gaze, and rooted in his love, you'll be able to give yourself to him and to your neighbor. Um, I'll end with a quote of Pope Benedict and a prayer of St. Catherine. So Pope Benedict said of her, I like the sea and saint, every believer feels the need to be conformed with the sentiments of the heart, to Christ, heart of Christ, to love God and his neighbor as Christ himself loves. And we can all let our hearts be transformed and learn to love like Christ in a familiarity with him that is nourished by prayer, by meditation on the word of God, and by the sacraments. Above all, by receiving Holy Communion frequently and with devotion. So end with St. Catherine. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I am speaking to you, Eternal Father. I am pleading with you, most gracious God. Give us and all your servants communion in the fire of your charity and dispose all your creatures to receive the fruit of the prayers and teachings we do and must pour out in your light and charity. Your truth said, seek and you shall find, ask and it shall be given to you, knock and it shall be opened to you. I am knocking at the door of your truth. I am seeking and crying out in the presence of your majesty. I am pleading to the ears of your clemency for mercy for the whole world and especially for Holy Church. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. We do have a few minutes uh, for questions and answer for sister. I stunned everyone into silence. Yes. <laughs> um, was it unusual for a woman in that time? Did, did they think it was unusual for her to be like as powerful or influential as a woman? Okay, the question was, was it, is it unusual for a woman of her time to be considered so powerful and influential? Um, yes, and actually the reason, so she was actually called to the Dominican chapter um, because they wanted to see what, what is this woman doing? Is she, you know, is she crazy? And so that's why they assigned a confessor to her. They, they listened to her and they decided, no, this is of God and we want her work to continue so she can have her confessor to follow her around. Although he sometimes got assigned to other things which caused problems for her. But yes, so it was unusual. And I think she must have had a great force of personality because she, it's so interesting, like Pope Gregory um, the 11th, when she was not with him, she would be, he would be 
so afraid and timid. And when she showed up, he'd be like, oh, yes, yes, I can do whatever God wants. And then she'd go away, and he's like, I don't think so. I think I'd better stay here. And, um, and really, it was almost her willpower that got him out of Avignon. He, his, his father lay over the step of the door and said, You're, you'll, leave, you'll leave my father behind. I'm going to lie here. And he had to step over his father to leave Avignon. Anything else? Yes. So my impression is she was very bold, but was she, it sounds like Jesus also told her to be very respectful of the priests and the bishops. So how would you describe how she dealt with persuading the Pope to come back to Rome? When you read her letters, she, you could just tell that she loves him so much. Like he is her father, you know, sweet Christ on earth. And she loves him so much, although she deals differently with the different popes. Um, Pope Gregory XI, he's very timid and afraid, and so she like, is very strong with him, do the, like, telling him what to do. And the pope that succeeded him, Urban VI, um, I think, he was, not as, um, he was not as timid. His problem was more he was overbearing and um, didn't really, not very untactful and not caring about um, what the effects of his actions. And so with him, she was a little more sharp and like, do you see what you're doing? Um, but always, I think they knew that she, Loved, her, loved them so much and respected them because she, clearly in her writings, um, she loves the church and was always encouraging others to love the church, love the clergy, love the Holy Father. Yes? Those different stages mm-hmm. that you talked about, or she talked about, um, when in life, you, you know, you said you, there's this, you know, stairs that... <laughs> When you, you can reach certain points and then you you can fall back down, then you go back up, and then I mean, is it a, a constant or once you've reached a certain plateau, do you stay there? I mean, is it like shoots and ladders? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's entirely like shoots and ladders. Um, <laughs> and like on the first step, the first step there are people falling off the first step back in the river, and then people getting up out of the river and getting on the bridge. And so there's a little more that at the beginning, I think. But by the time you're at the third the third level you're probably not going back down again. I mean, it's, it's always possible. She says, she, says that you're, she says you're sure of your salvation, but then she says you still have to watch out. You know, you still have to, um, what does she say? I can't remember exactly what she says, but she says you still have to be cautious and um, you know, seek to avoid sin even at that stage. And on, the, and on a particular stair, too, you're like, can we move around on that stair? You know, t- today you're practicing virtue, and tomorrow you're not. <laughs> Yes? Who does she think she's writing to? Her order, the world? Oh, in this? Um, I think, well, I'm guessing for her disciple, because she writes it, so this is what, this is what God has, um, here's, my, here's my dialogue. Um, this is what God has, or she, so she asks certain petitions of God, you know, to have mer- a petition for herself, to have mercy on the church, to have mercy on the world, and so, this is his answer to her prayers, but I think I would say it's probably for her disciples that she had she dictated these things, um, or maybe she it was an ecstasy. So I don't know if she, I can't remember if she intentionally like because they're just writing down things as she as she talks. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, I think it was probably for her disciple her disciples. Yes. You, you already mentioned this. There's some obvious parallels between her imagery and 
Teresa of Avila's mansions and John of the Cross's Dark Knights and so forth. And in, in, in those various ways of describing growth in the spiritual life, she was, what, 200 years old? She's before them, yeah. Earlier than, mm -hmm. than John of the Cross or Avila. How developed was that theology at that time? Was she on the cutting edge, or, or does this stuff, these, these stages in the spiritual life, however you want to describe them, was that fairly developed by her time, or does it go back a lot further than that? Um, it, it, it didn't originate with her, but I have to tell you that I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe someone else has a better answer to that. But so next, Saint Augustine. Okay. And next, next week you get Teresa the Avila, and the week after you get John of the Cross. You can keep coming to all the lectures, and then you'll find out more. <laughs> yes? Um, I don't think St. Catherine of Siena probably struggled with uh, tendency towards Puritanism, with like all of her emphasis on the images of the body. But at the very end of stage four, you know, you talk about her similarity with St. Paul, yearning for heaven, wanting to escape the body. <laughs> um, so it's like two kind of tendencies in Christianity to like overemphasize the body and reject the body. Uh, I just want to know, like, how does, how does it fit in that she's talking about escaping the body towards the end, but with her emphasis on the body throughout the world? Well, I would say that perhaps not seeing, seeing the body as evil, but just she wants so much to be with, united to God. Not that she sees the body, body as evil, because she speaks so much of how the goodness of creation, but she just wants to be with Jesus, united to him fully. So really, she probably wants the resurrection of the body. OK. Thank you very much, sister. That was Next Friday's lecture, come back next Friday, even if it's even though it's spring break, um, for St. Teresa of Avila by uh, St. Agnes's own, another Dominican sister, um, Saint, or sister, excuse me, sister Teresa Christie, <laughs> soon to be Saint, right? <laughs> Sister's with us tonight, and she'll be presenting next week, next Friday evening, at the same time, at the same place. Thank you very much for coming, everyone.